Turn in your Bibles, will you, to Philippians chapter 4. We're nearing the end, but we're still a ways off. Uh, Today I want to talk to you about the way of contentment. And believe you me, this is only like the first installment. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. So um, let me ask you a question. What do you do when you have personal needs? I mean, all this music today, it really seems like there's some needy folks in the congregation. I don't take anything by, you know, I don't take it for granted that that set of music wasn't done by Tracy and the crew without people needing to hear those lyrics. I hope you listen to them and read them. Um, and in the message today, I mean, it just, just goes together so much. What do you do when you have personal needs that gnaw at you? And they just clamor. They won't leave you alone, these needs. How do you go about meeting those needs, whether they're emotional or financial or, or possibly social? How do you meet those things? Many simply become overwhelmed and don't seem able to sort things out. So some self-medicate. They're stress-related to their personal needs. And some find other methods to cope with this perennial problem. But very few find either helpful or wholesome ways to deal with their needs. I was thinking of that last song that we sang and just how unique we are as believers that we can thank God for the trials. You know, people in the world that don't know Christ, that song is ludicrous to them. That just is laughable. But to us, it it reaches down and grabs hold of us. The human condition is fraught with need. Job said it like this, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's something to remind ourselves of. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Now man there is the generic term that represents humanity. It's not talking about a man or even just Job. It's all of us. And trouble is a Hebrew word that's used to express extreme weariness or intense vexation. That's what we're born to. How do you like that? Because we think we should be happy, right? Everybody's looking for happiness. And that's the human heritage ever since the fall. Trouble. So how do you deal with trouble in your life? Now the apostle that wrote this epistle to the Philippians faced a lot of troubles. And might I add and remind you that Paul was sold out to the Lord and he still faced all these troubles. So faithfulness to God and careful personal holiness or intentional personal holiness isn't a guarantee that trouble will not befall you, that that you won't run into troubles. And some of us think that. I remember one fellow sharing with me how frustrated he was that he got a flat tire. Uh, He was on call. He was a doctor. He was on call, and he was on his way to church, and he got a flat tire. He was really upset over it because he said, Ah, I'm on call And I'm going to church anyways, and I get a flat tire. What's up with that? Oh, brother, you need to dig deeper. (laughs) You need to dig deeper. From Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he lived only for the Lord, and yet he recounts just a few of his trials. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11 with me. 
this should just be burned in your hearts and minds. This is the man who's writing from prison to the Philippians and who sang in the jail in the middle of the night. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Many think that he died and God raised him back up. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the uh, Gentiles, and dangers in the city and dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Wow. (laughs) And people, that was while he was serving the Lord with a full heart, just all out for Christ. That's what he experienced. So, I would say that the moral of this whole story is that troubles will come, they are inevitable, and we need to have a way to deal with them. One of the troubles that Paul faced was taking care of himself and the apostolic party that traveled with him. He never was alone. I mean, he was alone for short periods of time, but he always had people with him. And I'm sure that as the leader he was, he felt responsible to take care of them. They needed places to sleep, food to eat, and so forth. And this is where the Philippian church comes in. Paul pulls back the curtain on his life in the text before us to instruct the believers in Philippi and us how to understand the needs that the Lord allows to come into our lives and how to be content in a discontented world because it hasn't changed since Paul's day. First, he relates to us how the Philippian church entered into his life and ministry and showed their concern for Paul. And then he goes on to open the window and help us all to see that one learns to be content with all those troubles. And finally, because this text is nuanced about the theme of financial sustainability, Paul reminds them The centrality of Christ is the primary way to address any and all needs that we face in life. You know, as I was looking over the notes this morning early and praying over the sermon in preparation, I just thought, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot to be responsible for that I'm giving to you all. Because as the truth comes out and you take it, then you're responsible before the Lord. And I just pray that God would open your hearts to receive the things of the Lord today and just ask him for one thing, just just one thing out of the sermon that you can take home and begin to apply in your lives. Let me read the text for you this morning from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Let's pray. Father, as we read Paul's words, we're reminded of how important it is on one level for us to be generous with our gifts because we have a model in the Philippian church. God, make this church generous as we give out. On the other hand, Lord, it shows us where we might be coming up short in the area of contentment. Oh God, take this word today from Paul's letter to the Philippians and break our hearts with it and show us that we, of all the people on the earth, we as believers should live in contentment because it's provided for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to say, first off, that the way of contentment begins with gratefulness. You see that in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul's basically rejoicing and showing his gratitude to the Philippians for their generosity shown in the gift that Epaphrodites had brought to him in prison from the Philippians. You see that on verse 18, I believe. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodites what you have sent. Okay? So he brought a gift. I think it was financial. Paul was in prison. And listen, being in prison in Rome in those days is kind of like being in a hospital in Asia. You're responsible for everything. Right? Anybody ever been to Asia in a hospital? I mean, you've got to bring your own pillows. You've got to bring your own sheets. You've got to have your own food. Somebody comes and brings you your food. I mean, <laughs> that's the way Paul was in prison. He had to take care of himself in prison. He just couldn't go anywhere. And it's an interesting story to kind of trace the Philippians in the life of Paul. Let me, let me do it just generally for you. When Paul left Philippi after his first visit, remember when he got thrown in jail and, and uh, the Philippian jailer came to Christ and so forth, um, The team left Philippi and they went to Thessalonica. Well, while they were there, the Philippians sent money to them. You see that in Philippians 4.16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So right out of the barrel, they start giving to his ministry. And then from Thessalonica, he went to Berea, you know, where those noble people were. <laughs> and then he went to Athens and finally ended up in Corinth. And while he was there, he was kind of alone in Corinth for a little bit until he hooked up with Priscilla and Aquila. And he got together with them because they were leather, leather workers or tent makers, and that was a trade that he had. And so he worked together with them. Now, why on earth was the apostle? doing tent making in Corinth because he is alone at that time. The apostolic 
troop that was usually with him wasn't with him yet. And so he was alone. And so he started making tents. In 2 Corinthians 11.9, you can just mark this down. He says, and when I was present with you and was in need, he's talking to the Corinthians, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, where Philippi is, they fully supplied my need. So they sent him money when he was in, in uh, Corinth. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, you carnal cusses. He didn't want to be beholden to the Corinthians for anything. He just wanted to deliver the good news to them and teach them the truth because they were so carnal. And he knew if they were to take care of him, they'd turn that on him. And so he worked with his hands, making tents. Now, many have taken Paul's tent-making work as a model for missions. And in actuality, Paul only worked when there were no funds to support him. And he did so not to give cause to the carnal Corinthians to malign him. But Dr. Luke, over in Acts 18.5, you can make a note of that. I'm just tracing Paul's history here. In 18.5, Dr. Luke writes, it would seem that he witnessed Paul working with his own hands in, in Corinth, making tents, but only until Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia with a gift from Philippi, which allowed Paul to begin again to devote himself completely. In contrast to before the arrival when he had to work with his hands. So when they came with the gift from Philippi, he was able to devote himself again completely to the Word of God. Well, there goes the whole basis of some mission organizations that think you need to be bivocational as you church plant. Oh, Lordy, don't get me started on that. We won't get through the rest of the text. If I were bivocational planting this church, we would probably still be meeting in a home Okay? It just takes so much work, folks. And Paul, the only reason he worked with his hands, not because he was lazy, he worked to supply his needs until the support came, and then he went and devoted himself completely. So, the way of contentment begins with a grateful heart. And, and Paul recognized that. He said, hey, I am content. Thank you for your giving to me. I really appreciate that. I remember that Paul was being held in a Roman prison as he wrote that, and this letter did not, he didn't know if he'd be released or if he was going to be martyred, and he's still happy and content and thanking them. Steady, I think the word steady comes to my mind with contentment. That's the first step in the way of contentment is to have a heart filled with gratitude he says that you revived your concern for me at long last. The previous examples that I just gave you, it's obvious that the Philippians loved sending financial aid to Paul, but I think he went off their radar for a little bit. And that happens sometimes, right? Um, they couldn't track with him. But when they finally figured out that he was in Rome and in prison, they sent a gift. They were able to start giving again to the cause of his gospel ministry. And he used words like, now at last, 
revived, to describe something that was a habitual thing for the church to do for Paul, but they had lapsed for a time. And that concern, that little word concern, uh, phroneo, we, we've studied that. It's, it's all got to do with the mind. The Philippians couldn't get Paul out of their mind. They were always thinking about him. And so in the beginning of the, the chapter, or in the beginning of the book, he says, what in verse 3, I thank my God on all my remembrances of you. He was always thinking about them. What a relationship with the Philippian church. Therefore, the Philippians' concern for Paul was that they were thinking of him all the time and wondering what his situation was. Consequently, they put their feet to their thoughts and they sent financial gifts with Epaphrodites. Now look at verse 11. Let me get down to it. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Let me give you a working definition of contentment, and it's going to take a while, so there isn't like one sentence, okay? This is important for us to understand. A definition basically hinges on the little word want in verse 11. Hustereo in the Greek, H-U-S-T-E-R-E-O. And it means to fall short or to be destitute. It's an interesting word. To be in need, to be deficient, suffering need or being in poverty. It's only used one other time in Mark 12, 44 in the story of the widow's might where she gave out of her poverty. She didn't have anything else. She gave her little two copper coins or small two copper coins out of her destitution her poverty, if you will. In that context, she was flat out, she gave everything she had, and it's contrasted with giving off the top. If giving doesn't hurt, is it giving? (laughs) Is it sacrificial biblical giving? Giving sometimes means a risk, means trusting, it means faithful. So, sometimes to understand a word, content, you need to understand the word's opposite, discontent. So what's discontent look like? Oh man, this is just so pertinent to us today. In this tragic world, we're surrounded by discontented people on every side. Every minute of the day, it's possible to evidence this restless discontentment in the people and how they respond to circumstances around them. Now, please remember that this is convicting for me as well as you. (laughs) People show their discontent while driving. That's why I said that right before there. People show their discontent while driving because the traffic is too slow. Or the weather. Man, we're good at that here in Minnesota. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's humid. It's just like, get over it. You live in Minnesota. It's going to be like this. Okay? But... Discontent is seen in the way you respond. Too rainy, too humid. Or in jobs, people aren't making enough money or receiving enough credit for the hard work that they're putting in or they can't stand their co-workers. You've all heard it. People feel deeply disappointed with their marriages or with how their children are turning out. Their bodies are too fat or not beautiful enough. 
mired in their discontent, people often end up buying things that they don't really need to improve their outlook on life. People try to find the way to happiness, seeking healing from counselors in their dysfunctional childhoods. Discontent is everywhere, folks, everywhere present. Discontent with the the love that they haven't found show up in lustfully roving eyes. Their outlooks darken as they make their way to another day at the job that they've been imprisoned in for years. Discontent. In a word, they are discontent. Well, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Sadly, many believers live lives almost indistinguishable from their discontented counterparts in the world. And that is not right, people. Is it any wonder that they're never asked by the unbelievers that surround them to give a reason for the hope that is in them? Are we standing out? Now, we're unique in church. (laughs) Are we unique outside of church? We sing songs like we sang, like I just pointed out. But I read an interesting quote. I I was in the Puritans all week. So if I start speaking Puritan, forgive me. But this one Puritan said, some Christians are like sieves. They're really great in church. When you put a sieve in water in church, it's full. But when you pull the sieve out of the water, it's empty. Don't be a sieve. Be like a cup or a bowl, something that retains and holds in. Study contentment. So from a biblical perspective, contentment can be defined as primarily signifying sufficiency. That's a short little statement. Sufficiency. To be possessed of sufficient strength. To be strong. To be enough for a thing. That's actually from Bynes, which is a dictionary. This Greek word, autarkes, means to be self-sufficient. You think, oh, oh, unclean. Self-sufficient. Self. The word self is in there. No, 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 no. Paul was self-sufficient. He didn't have any needs in prison. He didn't have needs in that inner prison in Philippi. Sure, he had outward needs to clothe and feed himself and everything. That was being taken care of. And when it wasn't, he went to work with his hands. Paul was a contented man, people. He was a contented man. This word is opposite of want, which means being insufficient of elemental needs or means, lacking, okay? That's what want is. And he says, I'm not in want, okay? And it was used by Stoic philosophers to describe a person who was unflappable and unmoved by external circumstances. Now we're getting down to it a little bit. It's an inward thing. Contentment is something inward. It's not so much the outward either response or circumstances. Christians are to be satisfied and sufficient and not to seek for more than what God has already given to them. We'll, We'll circle back to that thought a couple of times during these sermons. You see, in Hebrews 13, 5, we read, Be content with such things as you have. 
Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord's my helper, I will not fear, I will not be discontent. What can man do to me? That's a contented statement. The Greek word for content means being possessed of sufficient strength, I said, unflappable, unmoved. The idea is that the believer's heart is to remain quiet and calm and still in any circumstance, including severe or prolonged trial. Sometimes we start out content. And then the trial just doesn't end. Or we get caught in James 1. That's, that's what I call it. We get caught in James 1 and there are various trials and temptations. They just come on us and they're just all varied. And, all, and it's like it just doesn't stop. It's one thing after another. And we lose our contentedness before the Lord. Maybe a voice from the past will help us to get our arms around contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, he was a Puritan, 1648. He wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Contentment. Highly recommend it to you, but you've got to be able to read the Puritans. They say something, and then they re-say it, and then they say it again, and then they say it over again, and then once or twice more they say it, and then they go on to the next point, and they say it, and they say it again. Very redundant. But once you get in the flow, you, you know to just skip to the next paragraph real quick. So he says this, listen to this, this is a good, good definition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. These guys, I don't know, they must have all had very small parishes out in the woods where they could just sit and think because that is a great definition. It's a mindset. And it's a mindset that we should practice. We really need this in the world that we live in. You know, there's, there's another plague coming our way. You guys ready for it? Delta, the Delta thing. Guys, I wrote on Facebook today, I very seldom do it, but I wrote on it. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Don't let your heart become afraid. Don't become fearful, people. There's something going on that is global, okay? And we need to be content. We need to be bold with holy boldness, speaking the truth in love. Let's break down his little definition. He says there's a specific way of thinking. He says Christian contentment is that sweet inward, inward, it's inward perspective, an inner perspective. And it's sweet, he says. That means it's attractive. It's, it's linked to that word that I taught on when we went through the, the virtues, the six virtues that we we're supposed to think on, lovely. It's like that word lovely, which calls forth love. It is love-inspiring. It represents all that is pleasing and agreeable and pleasant. And it gives pleasure to all who come into contact with that. And don't we want to be that to the world around us? 
It's inward because it's a mindset. It's in the mind or the heart. And it's not just biting the bullet and keeping quiet when you're suffering, meaning not opening your mouth, but inner, it's meant that there is this, there's no desire or need to open the mouth. You're content. Quiet, meaning there's a lack of turmoil and unsettledness. Disquieted identifies a soul that's always churning like the waves of the sea, and that is not a contented person. So, as he says, Christian contentment is that sweet inward quiet, and it's a gracious frame of spirit. Gracious wherein the enabling grace of God is evidenced in the believer's inner man. Self-drivenness has been driven out by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This whole thing about desire really plays a big part in contentedness. There's a recognition of God's working in the life because he says, this one freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every situation. This is a capstone of Christian contentment. Honestly, grasping and living under the sovereignty of God is the heart of contentment. When you understand that God got it covered and you are not forgotten by God in whatever situation you find yourself in, you can be contented then. But he goes on, the providence of God is the outworking of his will in everything and in everything that comes into the believer's life. When, when the believer has sincerely accepted that before they were even one single day old, before they came out of the womb and while they were yet formless in their mother's womb, that even goes back further, all their days were planned and written in his book. Psalm 139, 16. You think something strange is happening to you? It's a story that's been written. It's a story that's been told. And the only one that knows it is God. <laughs> this is awesome stuff. Don't be a sieve. Don't be a sieve. Keep this. Hold this. Write down what grips your heart. Then the experience of a true Christian is contentment. It's obtainable. Okay? You start grasping the sovereignty thing. Finally, it's not only that there's a free submission to God's working, <laughs> they delight in it. Now, there, there's where it gets a little bit tricky and where we lose our contentment sometimes. Freely submits means not grudgingly, not hesitatingly, not under compulsion, but freely submitting to whatever God deems fit to bring into the life. You mean the loss of my job where I'm worried about paying the mortgage? Yep, that's exactly what I mean. You mean the fact that I just broke up with my dearest friend and I really am bummed and depressed and almost in despair because who else is there for me? Yep, in that too. How about when you're sick, right? This is nothing more than the lordship of Jesus Christ, people at the work in the heart of the life of the believer. Does, does Clay say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? Right? Romans, Jeremiah. Why'd you make me like this? 
The clay doesn't talk to the potter like that. I mean, it's a silly illustration, but you get the point. Neither does the one who is content question God's working, but freely submits to it. But there's more to Burl's description because he adds that at the deepest level of the Christian's being, the believer who is contented delights in the very decision God makes regarding their individual life. I've gone through times in my life, I'm just going to give you a little testimony, where I felt like I was a guy hanging on a flagpole in the middle of a hurricane, and I'm just straight out, and I'm just hanging on. And I can remember times when it was like that. Things were tough. It was a bad situation. And I'm just hanging on for dear life. And I remember, by the grace of God, thanking him that I had a flagpole. Okay? God did that. I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back. That all glory goes to God. Because left to myself, I'd be cursing the flagpole. I'd be cursing everything, right? Because that's what we are as human beings, post-fall. But in every situation, contentment, you delight in it. Not, not that you're happy. Delight's deeper than happiness. You're settled. You're settled. Hands are off your life. Hands are off your problems. That self-drivenness to solve that problem, you've taken your hands off that and you're relying on God. When we sing that song, I Surrender All, we do that every once in a while here. Do we really hear what we're saying? Really? All? I Surrender All? The believer who is content is a believer who can sing those lyrics honestly and even joyfully because they delight in all God's working in their lives. They're not questioning. They're not resisting. They're not arguing. Not for a minute. But rather they delight in God's choices for their lives in every condition and situation. These are those who are content. Mud on. Okay, we're going to just break into learning contentment because we have a few minutes. But the truth of the matter is we have a congregational meeting after the service today for members. We're going to decide on our budget for next year, so I have to cut a little bit short. I knew that. That's why I say it's going to be the first installment, and there's definitely more next week and probably the week after that, to be honest with you. Paul says, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Contentment did not come naturally to Paul. Paul was well off. I don't know how else to say it. He was raised probably not knowing much about want. Okay, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means he was highly educated, right? So, he learned contentment post-conversion. Prior to that, he'd, he'd hold the, the garments of those that were doing his orders, like stoning Stephen. He didn't know what want was. He had no idea. He learned to be content. This gives every believer great hope, okay? Because if it's something that can be learned, then you can learn it. If you find yourself as a complainer or a mumbler or someone who is dissatisfied, discontent with your situation, you can learn to be content. You really can. 
you can turn out just like Paul, where you're steady and stable, unflappable. The word actually means to learn from experience. Manatha, nano. It's, it's, it's learning, but not just head knowledge. It's, it's actually taking it in and living it out. That kind of knowledge is what we're talking about, learning here. It's to learn by experience and to discover and so genuinely understand and accept a teaching as true and to apply it in one's life. When, when a little kid touches a stove and it's hot, okay, and he burns his hand or her hand, and they go, ow! Hopefully they learn something, right? When they see that stove, they give it wide berth. They don't even go close to it anymore. They learned it. Oftentimes we say that just teaching something isn't anything if somebody doesn't learn what you've taught them. So learning it is to take it in and then live with it. Al Ray mentioned all the harrowing experiences that the apostle suffered, and he learned contentment through those. He became sufficient. Prior to that, he was insufficient. I imagine in his early days, he chafed. Whatever came to him in life, he had learned how not to react emotionally to the outward circumstances because there was a greater yes that was burning inside him. And that yes was, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever, Lord. I'll tell you, I, I knew a, a young lady years and years ago when I first got saved, and she had been a Christian longer than me. And, and in Bible study one day, she talked about how she argued with God. Totally blew me out of the water. I went, what? I mean, thought had never entered my... God is God. You don't argue with God. You submit to God. He's almighty. And I mean, I was just a young believer. But I guess somehow or other, that Catholic training or something, I understood that God was almighty. And carried into the new birth, thank God. But there's a mystery to Christian contentment that the world knows nothing of. Like I was saying, we're unique. The world doesn't know things that we rejoice in. An example of it might be Paul and Silas singing at midnight in church. Why would they ever do that in a prison? They're in stocks. Why would they sing? The world can't grasp that. Those were contented hearts in the midst of that deep outward affliction. What was the mystery of their contentment? Well, number one, contentment. You can take these down. There's three things, and then I'm going to quit. Okay, number one, content with little, but dissatisfied with even everything the world might offer. That is a contented Christian. You say, what? Contented with little, but dissatisfied even with everything that the world might offer. Matthew 16, 26 teaches us, for what will it profit someone if they could gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? The idea is, is that without Christ, without the Lord, there is no contentment, people. There is no contentment. Why do I say that? Well, the believer who has Christ can be perfect, perfectly content with very little and would be utterly dissatisfied with great wealth if it meant not possessing Christ. So possessing Christ is the end, right? That should spell contentment for us. Complete satisfaction in the world, but utter dissatisfaction with the world is a mystery only the true believer can know. Why are so many rich people 
so discontent if riches give them contentment? <laughs> you see it everywhere. They go from one woman to another woman or one husband to another husband to another to another and they're just not happy people and yet they live in huge mansions. They fly to Paris for lunch. You know, I mean, the wealth is just over the top but they're not content. Number two, contentment comes to the person who can lower their desires to be proportionate with their circumstances. Now, this is fun. This is fun. A person who is ever longing for more and even more, like Rockefeller. Somebody asked him, when is enough enough? He said, when I have a little more. Okay? When you're like that, though they be very wealthy, they'll never know contentment. But the poor man who contents himself with God has provided with what God has provided and is not consumed with that ever-increasing desire for more is a man who has learned contentment. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness. That's that desire thing for more. The itch for more, I've heard it described. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember, it is the love of money, not money itself, that brings all those trials and problems. It's a root of all sorts of evil. We have enough when we don't desire more. Contentment. We have enough when we're not desiring more. One man used this illustration. I thought it was good. A famous sculptor once asked, was asked how he could turn a lifeless block of stone into a horse that seemed so vibrantly alive. The sculptor answered, well, I choose a block of marble and then I carve away everything that doesn't look like a horse. Only a creative would say that. <laughs> right? I get what he means. I get what he means. So in the same way, those who learn contentment cut away inordinate expectations and desires that don't line up with God's word and his providential purposes for their lives. Here, worldly ambition comes in. The desire for fame or for riches or for power, even if they were to obtain those things, they would not be content because that driving desire for more is insatiable. Do not fall in to the drive for more, Christian. Hebrews told us, be content with what you have. That's not to say that a person should do this and not do everything in their power to improve their condition through hard work or education or advancement, but underlying that pursuit is the fact that they have turned everything over to the Lord and are grateful for their lot. Yet going to school to better yourself, nothing wrong with that. It's the drive, that inward drive. If you're doing it because you want to make a name for yourself, because you want to have degrees behind your name, or something, it's, it's wrong-headed. And it'll lead to discontentment. And that's a mystery. That's a mystery how you can continue to press on and yet be satisfied and content with what you have. Thirdly and finally, contentment is obtained when a person stops trying to get out of the affliction that they might be experiencing. 
rather than focusing on their problems, they focus on the goodness of God and what he has shown them in spite of their sinfulness. This is how you go through deep, deep trials and afflictions and problems in your life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. And the fact of the matter is, we are still sinners. And yet he died for us. There's inherent humility in Christian contentment. Listen to this thought, it's beautiful. There's inherent humility in Christian contentment and basic arrogance in discontentment. You think you deserve more. Brothers and sisters, you know what we deserve. When every intention is focused on the alleviation of difficult situation, providence has brought into the life, there's a distinct sense that somehow we just don't deserve it. We just don't deserve it. When in reality, we deserve far more badness because <laughs> we're bad to the bone. But God has redeemed us. But for the redeeming work of our Savior. Therefore, by reflecting on all that we have been forgiven rather than how much we think we deserve more of, we will become content. Now consider Paul. All that he says that he learned to be content, it was through his manifold experiences of hardship and suffering. So don't forget, content means self-sufficiency. Not in a carnal, worldly sense where the fact that he possessed sufficient strength, he could not be strong enough. He could be enough for a thing. He gained all that. He learned how to do that through the things that he suffered. Jesus said, I learned obedience through the things that I suffered. Jesus said that. What about us? Well, it's not just a thing. He says in whatever circumstance that he was in, everything. That's what Paul's saying. He learned to be content whatever circumstance that he was in. Paul's like the farmer's insurance commercial. He knew a few things because he had seen a few things, right? And that's what happens when you stay walking with God and you gain victory. We stumble along the way, but we know a few things because we've seen a few things. So that's my encouragement to you today in contentment. We, we've got so much more to do in contentment. I mean, look at the verses. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the Apostle Paul. It's going to be really, really great to meet him, to hear of his missionary journeys and the experiences that he had and just to share how you were sufficient for him so he could be sufficient for all things. Oh God, touch our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.